What does the Bible really say about religion? Spoken by Pastor Clayton Chan. So if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we've started a new sermon series called, What Does the Bible Really Say? And so we've been covering topics like abortion and suffering. And today we're going to take a reprieve or a break from just the heaviness of some of those topics. And we're going to talk about religion. Right? We're going to talk about what does the Bible say about religion? And to start us off, I want to first see how well-informed you all are when it comes to the world's largest religions. So take a moment, turn to your neighbor, and I want you to, if, if you don't know them, introduce yourself. If you do, just say hi. But I want you to come up with the list of the five largest religions in the world today. Okay, the five largest religions in the world. So go, discuss. What are the five largest religions? Give you another 10 seconds to come up with that final list. All right, it's great. I heard a lot of people talking, dialoguing, figuring out what are the five largest religions. Does anyone feel confident that they have the list of the five largest religions? Anyone feel confident that they got all five of them? All right, nobody, that's not a good sign. Would anyone feel bold enough then to just say at least one religion that they feel like is part of the largest religions in the world? And you could just scream it out. Buddhism, Buddhism good. That's one. Islam, good. Christianity, I hear. Good. These are the top three. These are three of them. There's two more. Anyone have an idea? Judaism is not one of the largest. It is one of the main religions. Okay. Hinduism, good. And this, the fifth one's the hardest. Does anyone have an idea of what the fifth largest religion is? That's great. Atheism isn't a religion, but you are right. It is actually one of the largest groups of no religion. Right? But the fifth largest is folk religion, which is like local religion. So if we have uh, data, we have a slide, if you guys could take a look. These are the five largest, well, these are more than the five largest, but these are the largest religions of the world. And like many of you guys said, you got all five, well, you got four of them, but you are right. No religion or atheism is one of the largest groups. Judaism is one of the main religions also. Uh, it's a small religion, but it is one of the main religions that we talk about or discuss oftentimes. So if you look at the data though, Christianity is the biggest religion in the world which comprises of about, or a little less than one-third of the world's population, right? One, a little less than one-third of the population believes in Jesus and call themselves Christians. And that means that two-thirds of the world do not know Jesus and do not consider themselves Christians. And so it's important for us to know what God says about religion, not only to increase and to understand our own faith better, but also to be able to engage with the rest of the world. If two-thirds of the world don't know God and Jesus, right, we need to understand what does the Bible say about religion so that we can engage with them. Now, we're not going to talk about all the specific religions in detail because that would take way too much time. 
Right? It, would, it would take more than one sermon to be able to compare the different religions. But we are going to take a look at what the Bible says, what God, how God views religion, answering the question, do all religions lead to God? Do all religions lead to God? And to begin, we're going to start with Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse, starting with verse 18. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Paul, in his letter to the churches in Rome, tells us that from the moment God created the world, he left his footprints there. God has made it so that all of creation points to him. That means that God has not hidden himself from us, but that he has revealed himself in various ways through his creation. When we witness the terrifying power and the beauty of a thunderstorm, it points to God's might and power. When we look at a rainbow, not only should it remind us that God promised that he would never destroy the world by flood again, but it also reveals God's grace and mercy. But it's not just nature. If you think about God's greatest creation, people, right, think about our bodies, the way that God created it. Our bodies are complex systems, right? Everything works together. Everything functions together and everything works together, and if something didn't function properly, the whole system would be put at risk. If one thing goes, slowly other things cease to function. There's a complexity to it, and yet God created our bodies with care and creativity, and he makes everything work. God has left evidence of who he is through his mighty works. This is why even before any of us knew God, we looked at the world trying to make sense of it all, and we figured there must be more. There must be more than what I can see. There has to be deep down inside, we have this gut feeling that there's this greater being who created it all. And in many ways, all religions are trying to answer the same questions. How did we get here? How do we make sense of the world that we see? The definition of religion is a religion is a system of faith or worship that influences the way a person thinks about, views, and interacts with the world. 
And the reason why we have so many different religions is because various reasons, for various reasons, people have come up with their own conclusion about God and the world that they have experienced. Paul points this out starting in verse 21 of what we read. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul says that the problem with religion is instead of honoring and giving thanks to God, people looked at creation and started worshiping those things. They started making images made to look like humans and animals as their gods. Instead of worshiping God, they worshiped false gods. We were created for worship. When we see greatness on display, we want to naturally respond in worship. For me, the best basketball player ever, and will always be the best basketball player, is Michael Jordan. Right? I grew up loving Michael Jordan. I grew up thinking that he was the best, and I still think he is the best. And because he was such a good basketball player, I wanted to be like him. Right? And that's not just me. There was a whole commercial, Be Like Mike. Right? But I wanted to be like Michael Jordan. And though I didn't have the talent or the skills to play basketball like him, I did try to imitate him in the way that I could. And if you know Jordan, if you ever watch Michael Jordan play, he has this weird quirk or mannerism when he played. Whenever he would drive to the basket, whether it was a dunk or layup, he would stick out his tongue. All right, so you always see him in these pictures sticking out his tongue. And so I thought, you know what? I don't have his skill. I don't have his talent. But what I can do is stick out my tongue. All right, so whenever I played, I'd be driving to the basket. I would stick out my tongue because I wanted to be like Mike. I worshipped and idolized him because of his greatness. And it's sad to say I worshipped him. But the reality is... What made Michael Jordan so great wasn't his tongue sticking out, wasn't his competitive spirit. It was just that he had God-given talent. And instead of worshiping God for Jordan's talents, I started worshiping the man. Instead of giving credit to God for all of his creation, we like to worship created things these images, these false gods. Paul says that when it comes to religion and honoring God, it's either we are worshiping the one true God or we are worshiping false gods. There are only two kinds of religion. It's either true or it's false. True or false. Either we are worshiping the one true God or we're worshiping false gods. And I would even say an incorrect view of God is a false god. And because a religion is either true or false means only one religion can be true and all the others must be false. And I know that this is not popular to say today because our culture, our society, we love inclusion. We value inclusion. We don't want to offend anyone or step on anyone's toes. We want to value people's thoughts and opinions. We don't want to offend anyone. And this is why when it comes to truth, truth has become more personal rather than absolute. We define truth on our own terms. You'll hear people say, this is my truth when it comes to their beliefs and perspective. But sometimes their truth is contrary to objective truth or facts. 
Truth seems to be relative rather than absolute. And to say that Christianity is the true religion, all other religions, sounds narrow-minded and exclusive, but this isn't just about belief. It's the truth that we find in the Bible. The Bible is our source. It's God's words to us. It's our truth. And we need to stand on the truth of the word. The more popular belief among people is that all religions lead to God. Right? We call this pluralism. The term is pluralism. People believe that all religions are talking about the same thing. They're just using different words. And so you might have heard the illustration of the four blind men and the elephant. And in the parable, there are four blind men. They come across this elephant, and they don't know what it is, but they start to make observations trying to figure out what it is. And so the first blind man, he touches the trunk and says, oh, it's curved. It must be a snake. The second blind man, he touches the elephant's leg and says, oh, it's thick, it's round, it's sturdy. It must be a tree. The third touches the tail and says, oh, it's wiry and thin. It must be like, it must be rope. And the fourth touches the side of the elephant and says, oh, it's massive. It's like a brick. It must be a wall. All four of these blind men made their observations about what they thought this elephant was. But the problem is, all four blind men were wrong. It's not a rope. It's not a wall. It's not a snake. It's not a tree. It's an elephant. In the same way, different religions may have certain beliefs in common, but that doesn't mean every religion is true or that they're the same. There's truth and value in every religion, but not all religions are true. All the major religions today can agree on certain things like you should, be, you should treat others the way you want to be treated or you need to live moral lives. But there are fundamental differences in what each teaches. And the greatest fundamental difference between Christianity and all the other religions is on the issue of Jesus. Who is Jesus? To truly understand what the Bible says about religion is to understand what the Bible says about Jesus. And so what does the Bible say about Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus is God and that he is the savior of the world. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making a bold claim in this verse. He is saying that he is not just one way to God, but that he is the only way to God. And not only is he the only way to God, he is not just speaking truth, he is the truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And he is not the one who gives life, only gives life, but he is the source of life. What Jesus claims here is opposed to the pluralistic view that all religions lead to God. Jesus has made a way for you and me to have life. And we see the fulfillment of Jesus' words at the cross. Jesus, who was sinless and blameless, took the sins of the world on the cross. He defeated sin and death by his resurrection so that we can have life. 
This is unique only to Christianity. We have a Savior who loves us so much that he was willing to die for us. No other religion makes that claim. Every other religion says, in order for you to be saved, you need to be moral enough. You need to be good enough. You need to be holy. Right? When we look at Islam, the way to salvation is by practicing the five pillars. And the five pillars are you need to fast. You need to take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. You need to, give and to be generous and to give charity. You need to pray. And also, you need to confess that Muhammad is a prophet. Right? Those are the five pillars of Islam. In order to be saved, you need to do those and practice those over and over again. And yet, even after practicing it, there's no guarantee that you're saved. For Hinduism, to be saved means to eliminate evil in your life until you are pure enough. Right? And that's why they believe in reincarnation. You're living lives over and over again just so that you can become pure and rid yourself of the evil. In, Hindu, in Buddhism, Right? The salvation is the elimination of desire, which leads to eternal bliss. So once again, it's to live over and over again, to get to a point where you have no desires, and that is salvation for you. Christianity says, you will never be good enough. You will never be moral enough. You will never be holy enough. But I'm going to send someone who is. While every other religion is about our own efforts and our pursuit of God, Christianity is about God's efforts and his pursuit after us. Jesus makes clear that the way of the cross is not about us, but it's about what Christ has done for us to make, us, make it possible for us to have a relationship with him. It's in surrendering and accepting what Christ has done that we understand that it was never about us reaching up into heaven towards God, but it has always been about God who reaches down from heaven to us by sending his son who is fully God to be fully human and to die for our sins. While we think religion is all about us reaching towards God, reaching up towards heaven, what God says is, I've been reaching down to you. This is a very different Jesus than many religions and even people believe in today. There are a lot of people who believe in the historical Jesus and saying that he was a real man who lived a real life on earth, but he was simply just a moral teacher or a good teacher. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, just like Abraham, Moses, and even Muhammad. Even Gandhi, the most well-known Hindu, once said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are not like your Christ. Right? And that's a whole other conversation. But essentially, Gandhi and Hindus believe that Jesus was a good teacher, that he had a lot of good things to say. But if we take Jesus' words seriously, he wasn't just a good moral teacher. He is God and the Savior of the world. C.S. Lewis, a Christian uh, apologist and writer, writes this in his book, Mere Christianity. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Based on what Jesus said and claims, he is either a liar for saying things that weren't true, a lunatic for thinking that he was God when he wasn't, or he's telling the truth about being the son of God, which makes him Lord. We have to choose. Based on what Jesus said and claimed, he's either a liar to us, a lunatic, or he's Lord. The Bible is clear about who Jesus is, and based on what the Bible says, that means all other religions are false. If we believe that Jesus is who he claims to be as the way, the truth, and the life, then all other religions must be false because what the religions are teaching are mutually exclusive to each other. Hindus claim that there are 330 million gods. Buddhists do not believe in any deity or god. In Christianity, Islam, and and Judaism believe in one God, so how can they all be right when they teach different things? You might say that it's narrow-minded to think that only one religion is right and everything, everyone else is wrong, but it's just as narrow-minded to say all religions are right. When truth claims are mutually exclusive, only one truth can be correct. Any truth claim is never all-inclusive. So based on what the Bible says about Jesus, that means all religions do not lead to God. And this is, why it's so, it's, this is why it's all the more important that we go and tell others about Jesus. Christianity may be exclusive in that we believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved, but that invitation is for all. God's method, God's answer for salvation is exclusive but his saving grace is inclusive. God doesn't just love those who believe in him and profess their faith in him. He loves every single person, all of creation, including those who don't believe in him. Jesus didn't die for the few, but he died for all. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish and have eternal life. He loved the world, all of creation, those who profess their faith in him and those who don't. If we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, how can we reconcile with two-thirds of the world not knowing him? Two-thirds of the world do not know him. As Christians, we are the minority. How do we reconcile that? The answer is that we need to go and evangelize. We need to tell the world about Jesus. And so I have two tips on how you can be an effective evangelist. The first tip, we need to prioritize listening over speaking. Prioritize listening over speaking. In my reading and studying of the Bible, I can't help but think of all the times where Jesus took his time to listen to others. Jesus was on a mission. He came to be the savior of the world. He needed to talk to as many people as possible before his time on the cross. But not once was he ever rushed in revealing himself to others. He took time in getting to know others, 
Remember Zacchaeus, the short tax collector who climbs a tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus? When Jesus comes, across, comes upon him, what does he say? He says, get down from there. I'm going to stay at your home. Right? Even before he uttered a word about his sinfulness or how he, had stolen, how he stole or cheated others, he says, come down. I'm going to stay at your home. He says, I see you. I value you. I'm inviting you into relationship with me. I want to spend time with you. I'm not here to condemn or reject you. But I want to know you. Or about the woman who bled for 12 years. As Jesus is walking, this crowd is following him. They're touching him. And this one woman who was bleeding for 12 years believed that if I just touch his cloak, I would be healed. And so she touches his cloak and she is healed. And when she is healed, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? What a ridiculous question that is. He's surrounded by this crowd. Everyone's touching him. But he decides to single this one woman out for her faith. Once again, he says, I see you. You matter. I want to be in relationship with you. What Jesus teaches us is that people matter. Christianity cannot be summed up by our beliefs but it must be accompanied by this desire to be in relationship. Christianity is all about our vertical relationship with God, but it's also about our horizontal relationship with each other. So stop and listen. Pay attention to the people that God is bringing into your life. Listen to them. Listen to their beliefs. Listen to their stories. Evangelism for so long has been about proving to others that they're wrong. We're ready to pounce at every opportunity to discredit their argument. There has been such a lack of respect when it comes to Christian evangelism. We don't respect other people's views. We just want to tear them down. It's almost as as Christians, we have this entitlement about being Christians, and we just want to prove everyone else wrong. Sharing our faith is not about beating people over the head and turning a deaf ear to them. Repentance does not happen at the head level. It's a heart matter. Winning people over doesn't happen through force or argument, but it's about listening to others, showing them that they're valued and loved, and allowing God the space to minister to that person. People are far more willing to listen to what you have to say when they feel loved and valued. Not respecting their beliefs, which is at the core of who they are and how they identify, will only leave them angry, bitter, and then they'll stonewall you. To evangelize is to dialogue. It's not a debate. The more we posture ourselves in humility by listening and respecting other people's beliefs, the greater the opportunity that we have to share our faith and our beliefs. Recently, uh, I was installing a fence in my house. A lot of you guys know I like to work on my house or do projects. And so I was recently doing my fence, and it was a long process, right? I had to get a survey. I had to get a permit. I had to do all these drawings to show the city where I was going to put the fence. But the worst part of all of it, more than the work, more than all those little details into the protocol, was dealing with my neighbors, right? I have this one neighbor. Uh, who lives right behind me. And as I was doing this project, as I was um, putting the guidelines to show where the fence is going to be, and I put this uh, post in one of the cement so it's not movable, it's there forever, 
my neighbor comes out and says, you can't put the fence there. And so I'm just thinking, like, well, why can't I put the fence there? Like, I got all the, the permit, I got the permit, I got everything approved by the city. What do you mean I can't put my fence there? And she's like, well, you need to be a certain distance away from the property line, and so you can't put your fence there. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Where did you get this information? Did you, like, Google it? She's like, yeah, I Googled it. And I'm just like, you Googled it. But, like, every city, every town has its own requirements. And so, like, we're arguing and we're fighting and we're going back and forth. And she's like, look, look, I don't want to argue with you. I'm just telling you, you can't do that. Like, you have to be a certain distance away and it's the law. And I'm just like, what? Like, I don't know the law. You don't know the law. How how are you going to say it's the law? And then she, like, passively, aggressively threatens me. She's like, you know what? I don't mind that you're doing the fence there, but future owners might. And so I don't want you to get in trouble. So I was just like, oh, man, this is like, like, at least... Tell me what you want. Like, don't be passive aggressive about it. Um, and so we're arguing, and then I'm like, you know what? Let me just call. Do you want me to call the building inspector? She's like, yes, I want you to call the building inspector and make sure. So I call the building inspector. I'm like asking them, hey, like, my fence is here. Is this okay? Can I put it on the property line? They're like, yeah, that's totally fine. All that. So I go back to her, and I'm just like, uh, I called the building inspector, and they said I was right, and I could put my fence there. And so I was like, do you need anything else from me? Right? And so after that time, right, since that time, she has tried to avoid me at all costs, right? She, I built my fence. She, she's been around doing her own gardening. But anytime I look at her, anytime I just face her, she, like, turns away. And I'm just thinking, like, this could have gone so different, right? If she had just approached me and we had talked about it instead of saying, hey, I was wrong and I can't do this and that, I would have been more open to listening to her and maybe we can talk about where the boundaries could have been. But she came and attacked me saying I was wrong even though I knew I did all the things I needed to do. How you approach someone has a direct impact on how they receive what you have to say. Listening might just be the holiest thing that you can do in conversations with others Evangelism isn't about winning the argument. It's not like a fight that you need to win. It's about being in dialogue with others and giving Jesus the space to minister to that person. So stop and listen. Stop being so rushed to speak and to tell your beliefs and tell your, about your faith to others. Listen to them first. There's a time and place for, to speak to them, to share with them your faith. The second way for us to be effective evangelists is to care for people on the margins. To care for people on the margins. Revealing Christ to others is more than just telling people about Jesus. To be effective evangelists, we need to be transformed first. As we come to know and grow in our relationship with God, what starts to happen is that we start to become more like Jesus. And part of becoming more and more like Jesus is, to, is for God to break our hearts for the things that breaks his heart. James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the only passage of scripture 
where the word religion appears. And in this verse, James tells us what true religion is. True religion is a devotion to God where we care for those on the margins. Orphans and widows were among the most overlooked and ignored group in Jesus' time. Both orphans and widows, they didn't have a means to take care of, the, care of themselves. And nobody would take care of them. And that's why Jesus makes it a point that we are to care for the widows and the orphans. Because that's what it means to love those who are vulnerable, those who are hurting. So who are the modern day orphans and widows? Who are the people that you see who are hurting and vulnerable? I would say orphans and widows still are orphans and widows and they still are vulnerable and hurting. But I think that list is bigger nowadays. All right, think about the kids who are being bullied. Bullying is a huge problem in our society. Or what about the homeless person that you pass on the street? Or maybe it's a female coworker who keeps getting overlooked for a promotion that they deserve simply because of their gender. There are people who are hurting and vulnerable all around us, but are we doing our part in caring for them, supporting them, empowering them? So I want you to take a moment and think. And I want you to think of someone specific who is hurting and vulnerable right now. I want you to imagine and picture their face in your mind. Hopefully, all of us was a, were able to picture someone. And if it's hard for you to think about a specific person on the margins, then the truth might be you're not spending enough time on the margins. Or maybe it's you are spending time in the margins. Maybe it's just you're not paying attention. Jesus spent his time on the margins. When we look at Jesus' life, he was always meeting with people on the fringes. It was with the adulterers, the tax collectors, the sinners, people who society deemed unfit. He didn't hang out with the religious elite. He didn't hang out with those who the society deemed holy because for one, they were hypocrites. And for the bigger reason is because Jesus came to restore those who are hurting and vulnerable. I think if we were to live out these words and go to the margins and caring for the vulnerable and hurting like our Savior did, I think people would have a different view on Christians and Christianity. Years ago, Shane Claiborne, who is a Christian activist and author, he actually came to Metro and he spoke. Um, and to be honest, I don't remember what his message was about. But I do remember, and I will never forget one thing that he said. In talking about Christians, he said, Christians are more well known for what they are against than what they are for. Christians are more well known for what they are against than what they are for. But what if we were to change the narrative on that? How amazing would it be if people started seeing Christians not for their condemnation or their rebuke, but instead of their love? Instead of scaring and condemning people in the name of Jesus, what if we were to lead people to Jesus by loving them? Fear is a powerful weapon, and it's been used far too often in the name of Jesus. We don't have to look too far to see instances of it. Right, you walk down the street, you can see people, maybe you've seen people who hold up these signs saying, the end, uh, the end is near. 
you're going to go to hell unless you repent. Or maybe it's, we talked about abortion last week. Maybe it's at an abortion clinic. You've seen people holding up signs of pictures of, of dead babies saying, hey, this is a sin. You're going to go to hell if you do this. Fear for far too long has been a tactic of Christians in, hell, in bringing people to Jesus. Years ago, uh, before I started here at Metro, I was started out in ministry at a Korean-American church in the area. And so I love this church. I was serving here. This is the church that I was part of before I started going to seminary. And part of my duties as a youth pastor was to organize retreats. And the retreats, usually, if you've grown up in the church, if you've been part of youth groups, that's like the highlight of youth group. Right? When you get to go over and stay overnight with friends and learn about God and do all these fun activities. And most people, most students, they don't need encouragement. They don't need prodding to go on a retreat. But then there's a few kids who still need that encouragement. And so during my time as a youth pastor, I really honed on to this one kid, and I'm just going to name him David. Right? David had been coming out to our church faithfully. He would come every Friday. He would come every Sunday. He would come and be part of all of our gatherings. He was committed to the church, but he would never go to a retreat. And so I pressed him on that. I was like, David, why aren't you coming to the retreat? And he would never have an answer. It was only later on where I found out that before David got to youth group, he was part of the children's ministry. And at the children's ministry, they had this lock-in. And a lock-in, if you don't know what that is, it's sort of like a mini retreat. You spend, uh, just, you sleep over at church, you do activities, you do worship, do some of these things. Uh, usually it's fun. Once again, it's like you're with your friends. But at this lock-in, the children's pastor came up with this brilliant idea that he was going to scare the kids into believing Jesus. And so what he set up was he made this, the bathroom really dark and creepy looking, and he had his high school volunteers hide behind the stalls, and so they're, they're waiting there just to scare kids. And so one by one, he sends these kids, these elementary-age kids, into the bathroom where these high schoolers would grab at their feet, and these kids would run out crying, scared for their lives, where the pastor would be and says, don't be afraid. All you need is Jesus. <laughs> right? That was his tactic. If you have Jesus, you have nothing to be afraid of. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> Fear should never be a motiva motivating factor in following Jesus. At the center of our Christian faith isn't about hell, sin, or death. It's about God's love for you and me. It's God's kindness, grace, and mercy that leads to repentance. Sometimes it feels like we have to trick people into believing in Jesus when Jesus is already enough. All religions do not lead to God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to God except through me. And that's good news. Because Jesus died for all. So let's go out and tell the world about this Jesus that we know. Let's listen to people and enter into dialogue with others about faith. And let's love and care for those on the margins. Let's show the world the God that we believe in. A God who loved the world so much that he gave his son to die for it. Will you bow your heads with me?
God, you are more than enough. You are more than enough. Sometimes, God, it feels like we have to trick people into thinking that you're more than enough. But God, you are everything that we need. You are everything that we could ever want. And so I thank you, God, for your love and your grace in our lives. I thank you, God, for showing us that at the very gist of who you are, the very gist of what it means to be a Christian is that you loved us so much and you have been pursuing after us from the beginning of time that it's not about what we do because we can never earn it, but salvation is about trusting and what you have done on the cross. As we've talked about religion, God, religion oftentimes is about do, do, do. But what we believe in, what you have told us in your word, is that Christianity, our faith, our belief, isn't in do, 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 but it has been done. And so, God, I just pray for anyone who is struggling with doubts right now. And for anyone, God, who may be on the fence about who you are and believing in you. I pray more than anything else, God, that they, that you would open up their eyes, God, to your beauty. It's not about what you can do for somebody. It's not about what they can receive from you. It's about you, a loving God, who is better than anything else in this world, that nothing could compare to you, and that you love them. And so I just pray also, God, for us. You know, sometimes it feels weird talking about faith with others. Sometimes it feels hard um, just to be able to go and evangelize. But that's what you're calling us to, God. To be bold and, to create, be bold and courageous, God, in professing our faith, God. And so would you give us the wisdom to do it in a way, Father, where you can minister into that person's heart? We know that sometimes it's not just the words that we speak, God. But it's just about being present because you are present with us. And so God, our prayer today is that for all of us, God, whether we are Christians or not, is that we would draw nearer to you. that we would know, Father, that our faith is based on a God who loves us, a God who has died for us, a God who has given up everything so that we could have life. So may we live life to the fullest. Thank you for what you're doing, God, and I just pray that you would just continue to minister to us, continue to give us boldness and courage just to be able to live out, God, this call and to share, God, the good news with everyone that we come across. Pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.